I beg of you, begin an investigation. Based on what? Your imagination. A great detective relies on perception, intelligence and imagination. How's it done? Is it some sort of magic trick? No, no magic, Watson. Pure and simple deduction. Hi again, everybody, and welcome back to the IMMP podcast, the Intermillennium Media Project, for your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and I guess it is still misuse of parental authority. This one was just kind of delightful, though, so... Well, that's it, a good sign. It's hardly, it, it's hardly misuse when it's a, hey, do you want to watch this? Oh, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. Instead of a, I'm going to have you watch this. Wait, what are we watching? <laughs> well, I'm Matthew Porter. I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And really, this episode is a throwback to how this podcast began. Oh, yeah. Just, we just decided to put this, what I have to admit, is an old movie on TV. And after the fact, we realized, you know, that's right in the window of stuff we should talk about. Let's go record a, a podcast episode. So here we are. Yeah, this one has the spontaneity that the early ones did. That. I still love. I like that. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you enjoyed this. I don't want to telegraph our reactions too much, but we are talking about a movie again. Yeah, a movie. Which I honestly, when we do a movie, it's a little more succinct. But at the same time, we have to dive deeper into what's there because there's not the the wealth of video to to sort through in that sense. Right, and with the. Um... With TV shows, there's the question of, where do we start? What episodes do we watch? How much do we have to watch? Mm-hmm. Do, we, do we go back and watch them all, as we wound up doing with things like Columbo, as you, if you've heard our We Kept Watching episode? In this case, there, there was the question of the, no, don't go. You've got to continue to watch for this part. Yes, that's but, right. But that, that's separate, and that's a thing to talk about, but... So the movie that we are talking about is Young Sherlock Holmes. You ever really wanted to have a... Hmm, how do I phrase this? You ever really wanted to see what would happen if you mixed the Goonies and Harry Potter? That's a pretty good description. I like that a lot. Yeah. (laughs) If you mix the Goonies and Harry Potter and you put them in Victorian London... Yeah, you've got young Sherlock. You've got young Sherlock Holmes. It's a fun movie. I, in, I mean, but it has this tone that I think is from that time. And the 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 most recent movie I can think of that has anything like it was actually some of the earlier Harry Potter films for good reason. But there's this stylistic, not just to his films, but overall this approach to pacing and such, which lends itself to certain types of stories. Right. And this movie has a heck of a pedigree for a movie that a lot of people have not seen. My goodness. Presented by Steven Spielberg is how it's introduced, and it's by uh, Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg's company. Uh, Directed by Barry Levinson. Mm -hmm. Produced by... One of the producers was Henry Winkler. That was... That's kind of cool. I noticed that name. I'm like, oh, hey! And written by Chris Columbus. That's the big part. That's the flavor coming through. Who wrote, and this will come back later in our discussion, I think, who wrote Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. 
released one year before this, who wrote, um, I believe he wrote and directed uh, Home Alone. I think that was him, yeah. Directed the first couple of Harry Potter movies. So, like I say, it's it's a, quite a pedigree, quite a, a number of people who were, were making noteworthy movies before and after this. Oh, yeah. And and there's even more things. When looking through the the about page and the, the credits for this movie, oh my goodness, there's some other stuff that pops up in here. Yeah. I don't. I'm. I want to. Go, I want to bring it up when we get to it. Talking through the story. So, but it. So, so set the the initial premise, as they very clearly describe in the block of text at the very beginning. This is not adapted from an actual Sherlock Holmes story, but it is a what if take as is if the characters met each other when they were in school instead of later in life like they do in the actual book right at the beginning and the end they they acknowledge the fact that you know this is absolute speculation nothing we we love conan doyle we love his characters this is total speculation about what might have been it, that feels le- more like uh we have to put some of this in in order to use the name for rights reasons instead of purely storytelling you know setting the tone there is something very, you know, the lawyers say we must tell you. Maybe. They do acknowledge um, the cooperation or the permission of uh, a member of the Conan Doyle estate. I don't know exactly who that was, but it was someone with, with the, the, the name. And I don't know if they technically needed the rights at this point, or they just wanted everything to be done in a uh, a very cooperative and friendly way. I don't know exactly, but obviously that was a concern to them either way. Mm-hmm. And uh and I'm glad that they did get they did get that permission. They did have that cooperation because it really was um I think very a very fond approach to the the material. Oh yeah. Th- this uh, with all the little references throughout it in terms of how they set stuff up, especially with the way they build the the classic look for the character by the end they <laughs> right. they it's obviously a bunch of people who appreciate the books and appreciate the stories and I, they they can be dense at times but i love them too so i could see that in this to some extent you're not wrong but i really tend to see this as the product of people who really loved the basil rathbone movie adaptations of sherlock holmes Oh, good point. As much or more than they liked Conan Doyle's original novels and stories. Good point. This is this is a fan of of Sherlock Holmes, the cultural character instead of just the literary character. Right, because that's where a lot of the the imagery that we that we think of for Sherlock Holmes that we see in this movie with the deerstalker cap and the pipe mm-hmm. and, and and such and the and even the cloak that he wears. Um. A lot of that comes from the movie adaptations, more so than the descriptions in the books. Good point. And, it- and to set up the beginning, this, this um, movie, as far as Sherlock Holmes begins, this, this is narrated from John Watson's point of view. And it starts with John Watson, a young schoolboy, transferring to a new school and meeting his now classmate, uh, a strange but compelling young man named Sherlock Holmes. 
And one of the ways in which I, see, I have to see this as more an homage to those movies than to the books is that this John Watson, he is a young man who is much more likely to grow up into the kind of bumbling, comedic, second banana character that was John Watson in the movies versus the badass army doctor who has seen combat conditions that you get in the Conan Doyle stories and I think the better adaptations. I can I can understand that, especially off the beginning. Now, the fact that they're having Watson narrate it is more book faithful than some of the other movie movie, movie adaptations. Yeah. There is a a tendency to think, well, Sherlock Holmes is the is the named character, so we need to always have the camera on him. And they they they, they fall into that somewhat in this movie in terms of cinematography. But narration-wise, they let John Watson be the the character both in time and as narrator, controlling the pace of what skips forward and what we stay on to watch. And that's much more in keeping with how the stories go. At the ver- By the end of it, with what we've seen Watson do and the things he's gone through to start with, I could imagine that character bootstrapping himself into the character we then know more so than he is when he first enters scene at the beginning of the movie. Oh, so in this what if John Watson had met Sherlock Holmes when he was younger, that's the kind of thing that would set him on the path to becoming badass army doctor instead of bumbling comedic second banana. Absolutely. Now, at the same time, the the Spielberg and Christopher Columbus Christopher Columbus polishing of the Sherlock Holmes character means that I it's harder for me to picture this young boy winding up pacing his study and injecting a 7% solution in the way that the (laughs) character would have to become and in some ways that rougher Sherlock Holmes is what requires a rougher Watson who could knock him knock some sense into this man to get him to focus yeah that's true. The best adaptations are the ones where, like the books, you can imagine a level of admiration and respect between these characters. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess they are setting up something where you could you could see that in their future here. Mm-hmm. It it, 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 it ends a little harsher for both characters, but in a way that is still, you know, family film optimistic, and possibly could lead to the people they'd become, but it's definitely not who they begin as. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I guess at the very end, they, they, they reach to grab some optimism, but, you know, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it ends pretty dark in a lot of ways. It, it actually does end pretty dark. And the whole story is pretty dark, too. And we talked about how they introduced the characters, where we seeing John Watson come to this new school and meet Sherlock Holmes. But the movie actually begins before we meet any of those characters. Oh, yeah. And the movie ends with... Uh, the movie begins, excuse me, and and contains throughout some really bizarre and disturbing scenes, I think. Well, it, it has fun with the fact that the, that the major murder weapon in this story are hallucinogenic darts. Are, are we back to altered states and veggie tales? <laughs> It didn't occur to me until you described it that way. Oh, goodness, you're right. 
These hallucinogens did not come from decorative gourds, did they? Uh, no, 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 no. No? Okay. No. Herbs and spices. <laughs> but the, anytime you've got hallucinations in cinema, it is time to double check your special effects budget. And they had fun. They did awesome with it. They did. I don't know how big their budget was, but they got a lot of mileage out of it. With, with a great combination of things, too. Everything they needed for the right scenes. Puppetry, stop motion, lots of things that we'll talk about. Oh, yeah, lots of things. But yeah, that first one, we see this older man you know, going to get a meal, but he gets you know, hit with something. And he grabs his neck for a moment, but nothing. Right, and there was somebody across the street with a carved like ivory blowgun. Oh, yeah. Shoots, so we see what's happening. We we kind of know more than anybody it, else. It's something very Columbo-like to have this murder at the start. <laughs> That's right. And then the, the how catch him, but in, we, all we know is that the, the whodunit's a hooded guy. Right. Somebody in a, in a big hooded cloak is all we know, shooting blowguns blow at people. But this guy gets hit just before he goes into dinner. Which leads into... Puppetry turkey attacking him, or was it a quail or something? Yeah, some kind of bird that he was about to eat after it had been roasted. Puppetry bird attacking him, he flees the restaurant, runs home, and then has a second hallucination of his uh, coat rack attacking him, and the lamps on the wall throwing their fire around the room. And I want to break that down a little bit. That scene with the, the roast pheasant, or whatever it was, like... Waking up and attacking this guy who's about to try to start eating it. That was horrific. His hands were bleeding as right. it pecked at them. It's like... And this uh, a, a, a head is emerges from inside this roast bird and, and starts pecking at him. It's really, really creepy. Well my, done. My goodness. Well done, creepy. Well g- done, creepy. It is never... It is never turn away from the screen, sk- creepy. No, yeah, right. It's not re- repellent or gory, necessarily. It's just, oh my god, I can't really under- believe what I'm seeing. Oh, yeah. Uh, there are certain films in which, when if, like, if you want to sit down and like eat dinner and watch a movie, just make sure your dinner isn't this. Don't eat chicken, don't eat bird at this, because you'll, you'll throw yourself for a loop. So, oh, and by the way, if it isn't clear already, lots of spoilers in this, as there will be for most any movie podcast that we do. Mm-hmm. In order to, in order to talk about it, we kind of have to talk through it, and that will mean if you if you are cons- if you've seen the movie, you'll be able to follow the plot points. But if you're going to see it after, you're going to know some of what's coming up. Yeah, and if you don't mind spoilers, it's not really going to spoil the movie. You'll still enjoy it if you uh, watch it after listening to this. Yeah, spoiler: Sherlock Holmes catches the killer. The deuce, you say. <laughs> So this guy who is shot with the, the, the blow dart has these weird hallucinations being, being attacked by his dinner, being attacked by his coat rack, having the gas lamps in his, his apartment set the place on fire. I kind of want to know how they did that fireball effect, because one of them actually bounces off his uh, pillow on his bed, but doesn't catch the pillow on fire. Yeah, I, I watched, I watched it and bounced it off. I'm like... Okay, either these are actually just like ping pong balls on fire being thrown into the set while the curtains with controlled flames go up, or 
they're tracking it and they can be tracking it. I don't know how they're doing this specifically, but I want to know what they're using to get that effect because of that, the way it bounced was like Mario-esque in terms of this <laughs> fireball going across a room and only igniting the thing at the end. Right. And I was fascinated by that. And this is a 1985 release, so this is long before the days of everything we can think of, including half of the actors, are CGI. This is all practical effects in that case. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just a question of what, what, what kind of fire was this? How flammable were the things on the set? My guess is that everything in that set was fireproofed except exactly what they needed to catch fire for the sake of that shot. Yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, and yeah, so his, and, and this guy whose apartment is now ablaze in his mind, he has no way to escape. So he throws himself out of this third story window, does not survive. The room is fine, except for the smashed window, because it was all an hallucination. And I mean, that is a way to start it. Like it, the, we, we smash cut from you know, dead guy in the streets with the snow starting to build up on him to, like, voiceover by a by a man talking about when he went to, when he moved out from the country and came to this school in the city, he met a friend that would change his life. It's like, okay, there's a little bit of tonal whiplash here. But, I mean, that that is a setup for you. And there's something about that generally dark Victorian London kind of setting that makes that transition work. Yeah. The, overall, there's something about things set in Victorian London that have this underlying, well, this isn't great for a lot of people going on right now. So you can move from things being pretty good for these characters on one day and it going to pretty bad the next. And that's just how this is all rolling, because the baseline's not moving. Right, right. Even for the people near the top, it's a pretty grim place to live in, in many ways. Oh, yeah. As it's portrayed here. And, and yet the school seems to be a fairly happy place for the kids privileged enough to go to this, uh, this boarding school in the middle of London. Mm-hmm. And... They spend some time establishing the characters. We get to see Holmes and Watson get to know one another and become friends. We get to see a little bit of the rest of the, the population of the school, the, the students, at least enough to know kind of where Sherlock is in this, um, this society. And, of course, he's got a rival who's a, um, a kid who is... Uh, I mean, everybody at the school obviously has to be rich, but he give, gives the vibe of the the kid from the rich kid camp across the lake. Oh, absolutely. He's, to, to pull the Harry Potter metaphor, we've got our Draco in terms of setup. Right. Very much. He even, I think, had two other boys that were usually following him, like the muscle. He did. It's another thing where it's, wow, this really was a trial run for a lot of what was, again, a lot of that came from Rowling's books and Harry Potter, but... There's so much you can see in this Chris Columbus screenplay that the the approach is so similar in the way he directed um, the Harry Potter movies. And I get the impression that Columbus probably paid really close attention to how Barry Levinson was directing his screenplay to make uh, young Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock here, in terms of where he's landing in the social structure, is the 
like well liked but outsider smart weird kid right he's admired more than he is understood and and one of the few instances we get of the 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 Sherlock Holmes trick of the immediately assessing who a person is is that first meeting with John Watson we don't get a we get him being an investigator but we don't get him doing a lot of that you know well this to this to that to this to this haha right based on everything from the shoes he's wearing to the coat he's wearing to the books he's carrying and <laughs> he uh, uh Holmes assesses 99% of of Watson's deal just from the first observation. Although they do a good job here of setting all that up, but they have him not being good enough at the violin yet and getting one of the pieces wrong, which shows he's still a kid learning instead of the perfected skill set of the later version of the character. And also the arrogance you see in the later version of the character, where anything that he didn't happen to get exactly right, he dismisses as not having been important. When in fact, you know, somebody's name is pretty important. Yeah. So, they've set these people up, they've set up this environment for them to work with, although there is one more key piece to add into the environment that we'll get to. Right. The, The rival is not just a general rival, but he's also a rival for the affections. Of Miss Elizabeth. Because there's a girl. The school. My goodness. It's a boy's school, but she's living there because she, I gather, her parents have passed away. And she's living there with her uncle, who's the former schoolmaster, who now lives in the attic and tinkers with flying machines and all kinds of other things. Yeah, so it's like, oh, she lives with her uncle. Okay. And then it's like, there's this crazy guy, like, launching a... A winged contraption, and it's not a standard, you know, curved wing model. It is a flapping wing. It looks like a wheelchair with stuff bolted on. Yeah, it is definitely more Leonardo da Vinci than it is Wilbur Wilbur and Orville Wright. Yeah. But it's somewhere in between. And it doesn't consistently or reliably fly. It it doesn't fly. It falls with style. Introducing a character by having them launch a contraption off a roof is a fine way to immediately apply the, okay, crazy inventor, label straight to a character, right off the bat. I appreciated that a lot. And he's also Holmes' mentor, and Holmes himself says that he's learned more from, from this guy than he has from you know, a dozen teachers at the school. And so now we've got this, this mentor character who uses the phrase elementary and wears a deerstalker cap. Elementary, my dear Holmes. Elementary. So we've set up, we set up the characters. There is, is even a little, I don't even know if it's big enough to call it a subplot, but a little mystery at the school that Holmes uh, solves. It's his rival has like hidden the fencing trophy from the trophy case and given Holmes an hour to find it. And we get to see Holmes going all over the school piecing together tiny clues with his observations and his magnifying glass, and eventually, at the last second, revealing that he has solved the uh, the case. And that, that, that gives us a chance also to just double down and reinforce a couple of the characters we've already met and kind of wrap up that chapter of the story so it can move on to the rest of it. That definitely felt like a, 
an act transition at the very end in some ways. Right. We've got all of our characters. We have their major strengths and weaknesses. We can now get on with the story. And the story is interesting. Yes. For one thing, we see another murder by hallucinogenic blow dart. Yes, this is the uh, this is the re- the reverend. Yes, there's a um, a a priest or a vicar in, in church, and like he goes outside to do something, he's hit with another blow dart from the uh, the cloaked figure, and then he goes back into the church, and he starts hallucinating, and watches as a stained glass window of two men, the knight in the picture stabs the other one. And then hops out onto the floor with its sword drawn at him. And my goodness, this special effect was amazing. That was an um, incredible scene. Because the the entire surface of this thing starts wobbling in a way that is definitely not normal. And this figure lands and it is these separate pieces of figure, but all moving together. And keeping form and like I, I I it's it's not puppetry because it's not puppetry. Because this was CGI. Nineteen eighty five CGI. And it was really good. There are movies nowadays that do not have as much polish to their CGI, I think. Because some of what you're you're witnessing in terms of how this is integrated into the scene is just enough to make this work. Now, it works partly because it is supposed to look mystical and alien and strange. A, a figure from a stained glass window marching around swinging a sword at someone. But more so than any other method of achieving that, it really does look mystical and alien and strange. And and this is where um, Mom was amazing in doing a bit of research and pulling up information as well to point out stuff. Of and and I believe you then followed down that train as well of who actually did this like effect. Yeah, this is regarded as the first completely CGI character in a feature film, and it was done by. The Lucasfilm Graphics Group, led by John Lasseter. Oh, goodness. Later, possibly even before this was released, that group was rebranded as Pixar. Yep. This this is the first movie with a Pixar character. The first Pixar CGI character. So anyone who who ever plays, like, degrees to Kevin Bacon and such, this movie should be on your radar, because we've just found... Christopher Columbus, all of Pixar, and um, and Amblin, all under one roof here. I mean, this is a hub point for a whole lot of stuff. Oh, and and Henry Winkler. We can tie all of these things in <laughs> through this one connection point. Oh, that's a great for a, for a trivia a contest. What's the um, name? A movie with a Pixar character in which um. Which did not include John Ratzenberger. This might be the only one. Oh my goodness, you're right. <laughs> Ooh, that's an excellent trivia question. So that is a, a great scene. 
and really mm-hmm. sets this movie apart. In addition to all the other great effects they use, because like we said, they use puppetry, they use um, Ray Harryhausen-style uh, stop-motion stop. animation for some scenes. Mm-hmm. Definitely claymation the, stuff. The fact that not every hallucination looked the same, I thought was really compelling, because the hallucinations are all coming from the minds of at least three different people as we see their hallucinations. They're going to have different characters and different feels, and they do. Yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to count up the number of people we wind up seeing their hallucinations. Yeah, I guess and... it's actually six if, if we if we really get there. Yes, and each of them has a slightly different style. Right. So here's a second murder, or a second mysterious death, because here the, the, the priest runs out into the road in a mad, wild panic and gets run down by a carriage. And the, uh, the, the crazy inventor uncle is saving newspaper clippings about these, which Holmes notices. And Holmes links them like these guys went to school together. The only apparent connection between these two guys who have quite unexpectedly committed suicide. And he's thinking foul play is involved. So he takes it to his... I don't want to call it friend, but his contact at Scotland Yard. A detective sergeant was strange. Yep, not 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 inspector. Nope, still working his way up. But he uh, and of course he doesn't really have time for for um for Holmes. I gather maybe he has more time for Holmes than anybody else in the uh, in the police department because otherwise why would Holmes keep going to him? But he does. But um, he has no interest in pursuing this. Well, Strange has no interest in pursuing this as any kind of murder investigation. It's two unrelated suicides, as far as he's concerned. So, um, Holmes wants to look into this himself. And this is where the story kind of drifted for me. There's like, he starts doing some research things, but... I, I felt like the the pace went a little weird here. Yeah, this is is a story that has a bit of a soggy middle, as so many can. Yeah, not that there weren't good bits and set pieces throughout, but it loses. It doesn't have all the pacing that the beginning and the end of the movie. Had. A mm. few main plot points, though. Yeah, for for one thing, Holmes is expelled. Oh, good point. Yes, the he he's. He's tricked into picking up a sheet of paper with answers to a quiz, which means that he's immediately expelled because suddenly his good grades are assumed to have all been cheating. And he in 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 a a kids as our main character's kind of sequence of logic, they go from the well you're you're having to leave to the I turned the I turned the carriage around and the I'll hide up here in the attic uh, laboratory. And you'll bring me stuff, and we'll keep working on this and figure out what's going on. And this is after the stakes are raised by a third weird suicide-slash-murder question mark. Oh, yes. Sadly, it is Elizabeth's uncle, the former schoolmaster and beloved mentor to Holmes, who um, is hit with this stuff on on his way into some kind of a curio shop and a little gargoyle... Um, bookends come to life and start attacking him, and he winds up stabbing himself, trying to fight off these gargoyles. Mm-hmm. A very sad scene. A very again, a very creepy scene. 
and really well-done stop-motion animation. This is what reminded me the most of Ray Harryhausen. Oh, Those yeah. little gargoyles running around were very much like something out of uh, Jason and the Argonauts, I thought. Oh, absolutely. In some ways, the uh, they, they telegraph how he will die in this too early, with him grasping for stuff for too long. And he's like, there's all these knives he could be grabbing, and he grabs this specific one and winds up plunging it into himself. And it's like... Yeah, that that scene could have been a little tighter, more more crisply edited, I think. But at the same time, if it was shorter and such, we wouldn't get as much fun stop motion with these little gargoyles crawling on him. So I'm like, true. Okay, that this is this is a hard balance to strike. And there is that extra bit of horror of knowing what's going to happen long before it happens. Oh yeah, that that, that, that has some tension curve that, to it. Yeah, that has some power of its own. But. Yeah, so he dies. The the assassin who hits him with the trank dart is, or that's a trank, a hallucinogenic dart, is actually very sloppy here and drops the blowpipe in like the the scuffle when this guy stumbles out, having been stabbed, but is not dead yet. So he of course gets some last words in, and like the. That's kind of how this soggy middle restructures itself, but it's also part of the problem because this impactful death happens in the middle of all this other stuff happening. So it just gets jumbled. It does. It does. Mystery wise, they are very good about dropping the right clues at the right time to keep things moving. Could have been a little more going on character wise throughout that. Mm hmm. But but this dropped blow blow gun does lead them to the next set of clues, and they start going around trying to find out you know who uh, who is connected to this ornately carved blow gun, and this strange word that the old man uttered as he died, and that leads them to like the the Egyptian ex, expat community within uh, in London, and. Show, you know, showing that blow gun at the at this you know bar immediately gets everyone to draw weapons on them and shove them out of the building. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we even forgot the fact that um in this it, amongst this entire middle and in the middle of him getting expelled and such is a one last sword duel with the fencing instructor at the school. And among the official instructors at the school. This uh, mathematics teacher and fencing instructor seems to be uh, Holmes's favorite, and vice versa. So you know, before he has to leave, they have one last duel, and and like all of this ties together in the end. But yeah, yeah, it's it's not hard to predict a lot of what happens pretty early on. Yeah, so we've got them now researching with a third murder in here and evidence from this blowpipe. And they, they do research in the library. And it's the library that he's been expelled from. But they're, So they're doing this at night, trying to be sneaky. And they gather up the information. And this is one of those instances where they're getting there and the narration, like, speeds us through the part that wouldn't have been as fascinating to watch. Oh, before we move on from it, though, you mentioned when they brought the, the carved blowpipe to the Egyptian tavern. Yes. And we're asking about it. There's one bit in that that just made it so clear to me that this version of John Watson is so much like 
the movie version of Ron Weasley, it seemed to me. Oh? Where you know, they, they start asking questions about this, and the, uh, the bartender starts pa- in, in a panic, yelling out to everybody the name of what we learn is this secret society of assassins. Suddenly, everybody stands up and the music stops, and Watson's just looking around like, was that the end of the song? <laughs> I don't know why, but I just love that bit. And it seemed such a Ron Weasley bit to me. Oh, that absolutely was. Some of that second banana sidekick aspect definitely can come through with the lines they give him. Yes. In terms of these these little bits of levity when things are getting serious. And it's not in a, this character is clever enough to be doing that for himself. There's a little too much genuine, this is what I'm thinking, <laughs> in the way it's delivered in those moments. But that that's definitely one of those those delightful little bits of, was that in the script? It's fine either way, but that was fun. So I didn't want to didn't want to interrupt, but I uh, drag us back there. But I just I love that line too much to uh, to ignore it. <laughs> but yeah, they they do the research, and the the narration actually steps in to explain what they've learned. Yeah, there are a few places there where they condense time, less through montage. Though there's a little bit of that, but much more through the. The, the the narrating older Watson looking back and saying, and then we spent the next three days and Holmes figured out the following two important points. <laughs> There's something a little bit Princess Bride of the skipping through some pages. I <laughs> know, <laughs> oh, you don't want to hear that part. Skip, skip, skip. Now I want Peter Falk playing the old Dr. Watson narrating this. Oh, I could so see that. I love that idea. But we get to... Um... They, like, find out about what this, uh, like, place was, and they'd gotten a scrap of fabric from the assassin at some point. Right. Now, is that before or after they meet the other school friend of the three people who've already died? That was before. And he tells them the story. Okay, that was before? That was before, because because they have to, uh, because they, they find that, they follow back, like paraffin wax from the fabric to a warehouse and fall down the side of a semi-buried wood pyramid in London. And this is where the Indiana Jones really comes through. Yes. A lot of things uh, that uh, almost uh, frame for frame, shot for shot similarities to uh, Temple of Doom by the same screenwriter released a year earlier. Because we've got our three main characters, Elizabeth, Holmes, and Watson, looking through the eyes of a giant statue that's mounted on the opposite wall to the, like, ceremony that's going on in this place. Right, while this Society of Assassins is preparing a victim for some kind of human sacrifice. And they... They, like, go in try to sneak out. Holmes is even, like, picking pockets and such. But when they notice that they've got a person wrapped up like a mummy and are pouring hot wax, I think, onto them? Yeah, they're, like, encasing these people in paraffin. He, like, yells, no, they're still alive! And everyone does the turn in the room to face the person who's not supposed to be here. And then the yell of, get him! And everyone starts running. Almost almost the classic, like, shot-reverse-shot scene of that type. 
but it's excellently done. And so then we have this chase that leads them into, like, a graveyard. Right. But not before the three of them, Holmes, Watson, and Elizabeth, are hit by darts from the blowgun. And so each of them get some hallucination bits, which is more fun, you know, stop motion. And one piece of very intriguing, almost, like, stage theater dramatic lighting acting and the fact that here again even though it's in the same real scene or sequence each character has hallucinations of a very different sort in terms of visuals in terms of tone each character has his or her own kind of hallucination absolutely we've got a uh, a claymation puppetry for watson and this dramatic Face your inner demons about your familial situation from Holmes. And for Elizabeth, it's really pretty starkly about death. Oh, yeah. Which is not a surprise if she's just lost her uncle, and she was living with the uncle because she'd lost her parents. Now, and death is a pretty large figure in this young lady's life. And she just saw a bunch of people try to kill a girl. Right, yeah. That'll, that'll definitely mess with you. The one thing I want to step back from our our scene-to-scene analysis here, though, Mm -hmm. and look at as a whole, we've been talking a lot about them going from place A to place B to place C, and back to A and C, D, A, and there's a lot of moving from place to place, right? which is definitely where this is more of that Goonies-like group adventure of kids kind of thing, because of this physical progression alongside the narrative progression. There's not the there's not in some ways the sit in the parlor and talk what the answer is that you see in some of these other home stories or other types of mystery stories. This is a little bit more action-y. Right. It is at least as much an adventure as it is a mystery, which makes sense, you know, given the age of the characters and the fact that it's a movie from the 80s. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's not a 18th century, it's not a 19th century mystery, it is a uh, an action story and an adventure in that setting. And some of those, when they're done badly, could become hallway-like in terms of the linearity of place to place to place. This one at least knows how to come back to a home base of the inventor's workshop sometimes and let the characters kind of regroup before going on the next leg of the adventure. True. The one flaw that I would say this movie has in that regard is that there isn't really much of a sense of travel. Yeah, there's They not... have all these locations, but you almost get the impression that they must be like right next to one another. They're the the school and the cemetery and the hidden Egyptian pyramid and all of the different curio shops and Egyptian taverns and things. They must all be within the same three block area of central london and no i don't think so everyone has fast travel that's the problem (laughs) that's right absolutely but that's the sort of thing where you don't see that in a lot of the newer movies sometimes because they'll have this same sort of driving motion but that little bit of a a puzzle room in in each one solve the thing and move forward you don't see that pacing in a lot of newer movies right and this is that's where this is in some ways, a, a fun example of that, even with its travel distance problem aside, it, it's got that fun pacing and that, that isolated 
block structure that can be actually quite endearing. Right, and your point that they go back and forth when they need to is good, too. There are too many movies where, okay, here are all the pieces of information that has to have to happen in this place. Or here are all the action set pieces that have to happen in this place. We go to this place, all of those things happen, we never see that place again. Here, we see, like, this hidden Egyptian temple in the middle of London. We have that scene you described where they're getting a sense of what's happening here. And then they have to go back there later mm-hmm. for another big important scene. There's plenty of scenes in the workshop. And the fact that they know they're coming back to this workshop set for multiple points all throughout the story means that that workshop set got the love and attention to make it full of gizmos and gadgets and work tables covered in stuff because it got condensed. These multiple scenes set budget all comes to this one place, which means that one place has more design to it across the entire movie. And speaking of the design of that workshop, it's not overdone, but there is some uh, some great proto-steampunk sensibility there. Oh, yeah. All this weird contraption-y 19th century invention going on. I liked that. To add a diff- to add another movie story to the the pot of reference we're putting into this, there's something a little bit Disney's Beauty and the Beast in there with the young girl living with this inventor men- character and there's some way of the ways they show uh, Belle's father in the animated movie <laughs> kind of relate to the way they depict this this headmaster character with with the the crazy spinning things in the corner while he works on the other thing he's doing. I like that. Yeah, I, I see that connection. So they do find out some more about what's happening from someone who knows. Another person who went to school with the three who have now been murdered by this Egyptian cult of assassins. And he tells them the story about how when they were all in Egypt and like they discovered this hidden tomb, this buried pyramid underground with, I think it was seven princesses and they were preparing to pack all this stuff up and send it back to London as I guess was the style at the time. And this led to unrest in the town that it was near, and then the British army had to come in, and the whole town was burned down. This story starts as, like, in similar way to the entire movie as a whole, it starts out with a, a, a dark note to start this seriousness. And then it seems like it'll be not too bad, and then it gets dark again and it's this little tiny version of the same curve this movie does of this like okay that guy's dead at the beginning oh okay this is gonna be a fun adventure oh <laughs> goodness it's the like this is, i can't believe all my friends are dead we were gonna build a hotel you know and then we found a pyramid and then the townsfolk got mad and the army came and they all burned they burned so much it's like okay dude Whoa, I know that you are simultaneously, A, working off a tra- uh, another hallucinogenic dart that hit you, and having a bad flashback, but whoa, kids film. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to peg the tone of this. It's, it, it's almost a little anime-like in that sense. 
how quickly it bounces back and forth from jokey school adventures to serious drama about civil populations being destroyed by armies yeah. and back to mysteries and, and, and adventures. A lot of non-American media is okay with that quicker shift of tone because it its audience is both accustomed to and it expects to be able to toggle between what it needs quicker than an American production that usually feels the need to stay to a, a, a note of tone and fluctuate only a little above or below it as it goes. Right, because they want to stick in these very set marketing categories. Is this a kid's movie? Is it a teen movie? Is it a grown-up movie? Is it an Oscar-type movie? Mm-hmm. And so... To to have a movie that is definitely got that that American Hollywood production, but has the tone oscillation that I expect from something from somewhere else, I guess is part of what I'm finding in terms of the pacing and the the tone I keep coming back to in this of it being odd and being something that I don't see much of anymore. And as a young person, I really appreciated that when movies weren't afraid to do that. I always thought when i got to when i saw a kids movie or a teen movie that had the fun stuff but also had some dark serious substance to it like i was being taken seriously as the audience mm-hmm. i wasn't just being you know fed something to sell me popcorn and they will they will end this entire dark conversation with uh lieutenant inspect uh, lieutenant um detective was it what was his title? Uh, Detective Sergeant Lestrange. Detective Sergeant Lestrange coming over and hitting the guy over the head with the butt of his gun. And then kicking the kids out, because why are you here again? Although, thank you for getting me on this case now that there's more evidence to go on. And I like what some of that evidence is, too. Oh, yeah. He... <laughs> um, after the three of the kids were hit with blow darts and survived their uh, their hallucinations... They left. They they went back to Lestrange, who said he's not interested in this. You kids are, are crazy. There's nothing going on. It's all just coincidental suicides. Holmes left with Lestrange the um, the blow darts, and Lestrange accidentally pricked his finger with one of them. That's all we last we see of that until he comes back in this scene as you're describing. Oh, and you- he's saying that's that's why he. Uh, he he now believes them because he pricked his finger and he had a horrible hallucination for four hours. Uh, you 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 want the tonal oscillation? We've got a guy still on his hallucinating trip is has knocked Watson to the ground and and such and is choking Holmes out on the floor, thinking that he's in fact this young boy who is one of the survivors of the village who's coming back for revenge. And then Lestrange comes in and almost slapstick knocks the guy out with the butt of his gun and says, yeah, I pricked my fingers with that. It took them, f- took after four hours. And then it's the phrase, the uh, other, the other uh, men were able to keep me from hanging yeah, myself. Three constables to keep me from hanging myself. Like, whoa, okay. Whoa, okay. Back to dark again. Get out, boys, but thank you for getting me on the case. <laughs> and then we've got two teens pouting as they walk away. Yeah. Once again, back to kids' movie. I'm like, whoa, okay. Like, dark light, dark light. Oh, there, there's just... It's here, and it, it doesn't stop for you. It trusts you to follow it, and it keeps going. 
I like that, but it also throws you if you're not ready in some ways. So we do, by the end of that scene, we essentially know the structure of what's happening. There was a boy in this village that was destroyed who swore revenge, and there's this society of assassins who's shunned by the rest of Egyptian society because they're evil and dangerous and all this. And But, uh, but based upon the modus operandi, that's what's happening now, and that's why these particular people who were in this venture together in, in Egypt are being killed off one by one in this way. And this society also has had the mandate to replace the seven princesses. So that's why they're like capturing young ladies and wrapping them in linen and... Paraffin sealing in, them for seal, freshness? Sealing them in paraffin, right. But, it, so like, they've set this whole thing up and now we know who it is, and we've got to go back to this pyramid that they'd already infiltrated once and face them down. Well, they don't, they, the reason they have to do that, though, is because they are discovered. Oh, yes. They have all the information. They know basically what's happening. In this, it's this society. There's a person who is leading them. This is why they're doing what they're doing. Before they get to act on that, they are discovered. That is, the fact that Holmes didn't leave as he was supposed to when he was expelled is discovered. The fact that Elizabeth and Watson were helping him is discovered, and they're all in big trouble. And the people who discovered them are this favorite mathematics teacher and fencing instructor from the school and the nurse at the school. So they're kind of, they're separated. The nurse is taking care of Elizabeth. The boys are locked up or kept in a room or something under watch or, or something, or were they kicked out? I forget. They were put in 12B. 12B? Yep. <laughs> so they're put in room 12B for the night, and the teacher's saying, well, we'll have to deal with this in the morning. It's too late to get your transportation to your brother's house homes, and too late to kick you out of school the way we're going to have to, Watson. And, uh, and we'll figure out what to do with you, Miss Elizabeth. But then once this is all done... Turns out they're in even more trouble than they thought. Because the nurse comes to get Elizabeth and take her to the pyramid. Because they're the bad guys! So who is this young Anglo-Egyptian man who has sworn revenge and is rebuilding this society of assassins? It's the math teacher, of course. Mm-hmm. Your, your math teacher on, on the weekends likes to wear a giant head of Anubis and sacrifice people in an overly complicated ritual. Okay, then. That's a very different thing. You do know that the, the, the robes and the weird head that he wore did remind me of something else we've watched for this podcast. Oh, which one? Oh, no. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> There's a little bit of Marty Croft in that. A little bit of Sid and Marty Croft in that big Anubis head. <laughs> Everything comes back. No. <laughs> Everything comes back. All leads to Lidsville. <laughs> All roads lead to Lidsville. Oh, goodness. But in this case, you're right. We, we find out that uh, it's the 
the math teacher and the nurse at the school, who's his younger sister and the chief assassin. She's the one in the cloak with the blowgun who's been going around shooting people. In some ways, one of the most dramatic reveals is the, like, the fact that her hair is a wig and she's got this like bald assassin's robe hood thing going on in terms of a look, which is a very different transition from this school nurse effect. I do remember that seeing this in a movie, in a, in a movie theater, that shot of like the dog pulling off her wig and she with this weird grinning laugh and this suddenly bald head was creepier than it had a right to be. Oh, yeah. That's just, that was just like... I, I, the dedication also from that actress to set up for that bit of her playing that part there. When it required that costume change, that's pretty impressive because it it does it does take a. From what I could tell, that was not a, a a purely a cap. There was it was also a very short cut then to make that work. Oh yeah, so I mean, that's, I, very, she, that's an, this, this, I think this actor yeah shaved her head for that role. So that's very limiting to what she could do in terms of roles after that oh, for a bit. Yeah, well, that, you know, she was wearing a wig throughout the rest of this production. I'm sure. Absolutely. As the character was. Absolutely. But it's still, that, that's some dedication to be able to play a part. But it was, it was good performances on her part, on the part of the guy playing uh, uh, the math teacher, whose name is Wraith, which turned out to be the name of the, uh, the legendary assassin backwards, was Wraith. Yeah, that, that, that's one of those, like, you know, well, here's our teacher list. It's, you know, Mr. Johnson and Steve and Wraith. Huh. Looking down this roster, I can kind of see who's either an important character or an evil character, or both. <laughs> <laughs> one of the few, one of the little bits of a giveaway early on was was the odd naming choice. So they do have, they gay grab Elizabeth and bring her back to this underground pyramid temple somewhere else in London and or next door to the school, and. And that's why uh, Holmes and Watson have to go back there, of course, to rescue Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And it's the entire fight is very. It's interesting, but it's a little bit hard to tell where things are because of the way it gets cut. Because I really thought that this pyramid was a certain size and then it just seems bigger and bigger as this fight goes on. Because in order to get there in time, they take the flying machine, and they crash that in the river. True, that's like the only bit of, of travel as plot point, is the fact that they have to take the flying machine. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that. And they, they like make it from the flying machine in, through the same way that they'd gotten in before. Hey, the kids got in this way before, to the same place they were. You'd think they have fixed this hole. Yeah, you know, for for an ancient society of assassins, their security is a bit lax. Yeah, they get in, they, like, figure out a way to rope the rafters of this pyramid so that they can collapse the entire thing. Right, because Holmes figures out, you know, if my geometry is correct, one beam out of place will bring this entire place down. And I think you had a very good reaction there at the time when we were watching it. You know, the girl they're trying to save is wrapped up and immobile, wrapped up in linens in the center of this pyramid with 
all kinds of candles and torches and things around. And they're about to cover her in molten paraffin wax. Right. So yeah, there is a boiling pot of paraffin somewhere next to and above her. So what do they decide to do? Bring the ceiling down. Yeah, it's like, now now she'll die not, on, not only in burning wax, but also in wood chips. Like, great. Okay. I'm starting to see the sort of English sensibility that led a previous venture to go from wanting to be a hotel developer to destroying a village. <laughs> you know, you guys gotta learn nuance at some point. I mean, there there is, I mean, this is a movie that unfortunately has a a broadly characterized stereotype of a, an entire another nation and culture as its villains in some ways. Although they make an okay point of showing this as a a a splinter group from there, but it's it's still not doing great with its characterization. Yeah. And also they make a point that all the minions that we see in the temple, they're not like Egyptians. They're disaffected working class from all over London who were roped into this thing, which mm. probably would have sold really well at the time in, in certain parts of London society. This, ooh, you want to join a spooky Egyptian cult? It's really cool. A lot of English would have been all over that. Yeah, good point. And, and the, the few other Egyptians we see want nothing to do with this cult. There is a through line of, of, of British people coming in and absolutely wrecking Egyptian-themed things. That's like a weird third line of this story. Everything from the village that goes down to the, wow, you guys built an entire structure based on this other thing. We can break it in one move. Watch this. And they proceed to do that. And it does bring the whole ceiling down and lots of conveniently timed pillars and beams and things fall on top of bad guys who are about to get the kids as they run through and try to to rescue Elizabeth and get her out of there and run away themselves. The, um, the uh, nurse gets uh, defeated by grabbing the end of her blowgun as she's about to fire it and blowing back into it, which also means it's not a well-built blowgun if it doesn't have a one-way valve in it. Yeah, it's just a plain tube, apparently. Just a plain tube, but it means that she like hallucinates. We don't get to see her hallucination, but she hallucinates her way into a... A candelabra which catches her on fire, so she gets her own dramatic death. And lots of lots of fleeing guys with swords. Yeah, each of whom was knocked down by a falling beam at just the right time. Oh, absolutely. And that's where I'm like, this place must be much bigger than I think first thought when we saw it. Because there's just a lot more beams and staircases. <laughs> and people. And people. Like, I think this thing has a kitchenette attached to it or something, because this thing's huge. Now, Watson does manage to get Elizabeth out, but Holmes is kind of trapped there because he was up in the rafters tying beams to chandelier chains and things to make all of this destruction happen. And in the end, after a lot of this fighting and his conflict with the uh, the lady assassin and all that, he winds up unconscious on top of the sh- the, the chandelier that is now on the floor. And this is where Watson gets to really, like, step it up, because we watch him figure out that he has to both... Well, uh, Elizabeth gets grabbed again. Right, yeah, that's right. So he's... he Elizabeth's grabbed by, by Wraith, who shows up. By Wraith, who shows up. And who uh, manages to run away with her 
just ahead of another convenient burning beam that falls from the ceiling. Is that before or after Wraith has like the uh, the, uh, the other sword fight with uh, Holmes, which where they both lose their swords and start like fighting with oars and beams? Oh, that's only later. That's after later. They're out, out of, after they're out of the temple and they're out on the docks. Okay, yeah. But like we watch as we watch as Watson like realizes I've got a guy trying to leave and I've got a thing I need to bring up and so he ropes them together with a grappling hook. And so we literally get the bad guy running away being the force that powers the dramatic rise to saving of our hero. So his his carriage running away pulls uh Holmes pulls the chandelier that Holmes is lying on up out of the flames and up where he can join Watson. I mean, this is a situation where physics should not allow this. I He's making turns and such. That rope, I don't know if it would handle what it's trying to do on the yeah. connection it's got. I thought they did a pretty good job of showing that he was connecting to a chain, connecting the rope to a chain that was already going through a pulley system down to the chandelier. And he threw it over a beam to get a good angle down to the carriage. So you're right. The one thing that I'm not sure about is would this rope have survived this? Or would the carriage have survived this? Or would the the axle have been pulled off uh, in the first few feet? Yeah, but we get we, it, the, the, the effect of watching this carriage run and then come to a, to a sharp halt, snapping the main bo- uh, bar, throwing Wraith with the horses in one direction and the carriage with Elizabeth skidding to a halt in the other is pretty excellent i did like that bit that was fun and then holmes just kind of like pops up off of the uh from his unconsciousness off of the uh chandelier good job watson and they start running so they manage to get elizabeth mm-hmm. and start to and they think oh well wraith has as has disappeared but at least we saved elizabeth and we stopped this evil cult and now we can just go and let the police and the newspapers explain it all Nope. But no, Wraith is not gone, is he? Nope. He pops up, and there's the entire... He pops up, shoots Elizabeth. Right. He has his little two-shot pistol. He goes to shoot Holmes, but Elizabeth, of course, shields Holmes and takes the bullet in his place. This is very dramatic. They've already shown, you know, Holmes and Elizabeth being a couple. They were going to kiss in the library. She's writing, I love you, in a window to him. It's very, very sweet. Yeah, they're so, soulmates. So it's kind of the flag, though, that's saying she's not going to make it. Right, yeah, unless it's a, it's a really alternate universe in which uh, Sherlock Holmes gets married at age 17. Uh, yeah, it's not going to go well for Elizabeth. No, yeah, so so she takes the bullet, and we get we get Watson, who's been talking about trying to be a doctor, like, trying to patch her up, which is... But yeah, this was a pretty on-target shot, though, sadly. And so we've got Watson attempting to stabilize Elizabeth here. Meanwhile, Holmes is going off to have his dramatic final sword duel with his fencing instructor. And they don't, they don't cut back and forth to keep tension there. They actually hold on the fence and the, the sword fight for a while in some bits. They do, yeah. They don't go back to, uh, to Watson and Elizabeth very much at all. Just once or twice in this long fight scene. And I really, yeah, they really needed to, because this fight scene is long. This fight scene is both of us lose our swords and start grabbing, like, boat oars and attacking each other. Yeah, I mean, the number of weapons in that one thing. We go from swords to packing hooks to crates to boat oars. I'm not sure what they didn't use. Yeah, 
it's it's just kind of there was something a little bit fighting video game about this side on shot and this you know advance retreat attack and there's uh, some of the some of the acting gets a little mark a to mark b in terms of their their movements in this fight there were moments where it's like that swing wasn't anywhere near him. You're just making sure you're standing where you needed to. Yeah, the the choreography and the the direction and the editing was n- it it was limited and it it really showed in that fight scene. If, but based on what you've said, do you have a machine that'll run a copy of Eternal Fighter Zero? I think I might because I would love to make uh, Eternal Fighter Fighter Zero uh, sprites for these characters now. Oh, that would be brilliant. Just, just you know, young Sherlock Holmes, like switching up weapons and attacking. Right. That could be fun. <laughs> Wouldn't uh, that be great? Just a Sherlock Holmes fighting game would be <laughs> excellent. It would have to just be a two D, you know, side to side fighter. Oh yeah, but I could, I could see that being really fun. So as you were saying, this fight goes on for a while, mm-hmm. and it end, it ends pretty dramatically, pretty cool with um them like Holmes kind of like forcing Wraith back to where they crashed the plane and he sinks in the cracked ice into the Thames. Right. So there the most interesting part of the fight was at the very end where they're it's kind of, you know, Robin Hood quarterstaff fighting, but it's on these wobbly blocks of ice that are cracked into the surface of the Thames. But you're right, eventually um Wraith falls through one of those cracks and disappears in a bunch of blood and bubbles mm-hmm. hand reached out towards the surface so uh, uh unfortunately elizabeth doesn't make it much longer no she survives just long enough to promise to be waiting in the for them to talk about the fact that they'll meet again in a better world and she'll be waiting for him mm-hmm. and this is this that's where like the dark part of this comes in because here's the here are these two young boys who are now losing that piece of their education. The mentors on both ends for Holmes are gone. His love his love interest is dead. This is a harsh like ending slate for this character. It really is. And meanwhile, we've literally had Watson go from nervous young boy to I've been shot at. I've been. I've, people have come at me with swords. I have been drugged, and I have had a patient die in my hands before I've even gotten to medical school. That that sounds like the sort of stuff that could drive this character to be that much more hardened war veteran doctor character later. But still, they had to do that to this kid yeah. character. That's that is rough. And yet, as you alluded to earlier, after this, they really turn around and they try to go to the optimistic, wasn't this a wonderful adventure and I know my life's going to be full of interesting things. And, you know, it's great to be optimistic, but it was a little bit jarring to go from the death of Elizabeth to, oh, my best friend is going off to another school and I'll miss him, but here's a present for him and wasn't this a wonderful adventure. And I know great things are happening in the future. Like, really? How much death have you kids dealt with in the last week, two weeks? I, I can't. I can't tell which is like more more awkward. There, 
is it the kid who might just be in shock trying to keep an uplifting mood or is it the voiceover of the old man who's seen a lot talking about this horrible thing that happened to him <laughs> with this ah that was the start of my life it's like wow that's kind of rough dude maybe it's it's the old man who was a uh, uh, uh an army combat doctor looking back to those innocent times of his youth. Remember when we were kids and life was so easy and there were rarely more than three or four deaths per week. And some of them were people we didn't even know. Gosh, (laughs) we were so young. Life was so easy back then. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, the optimism makes it darker. I guess so. You gotta, you've got to think about what is it compared to? Maybe that was a, an optimistic week compared to the rest of John Watson's life. Hey. But then, I mean, that's the, that's the end of our movie. But that's when this movie does one last thing. Yeah? That's, it has an after-credits sequence. That's the first movie I recall seeing that did that, where you, if you, you get something extra if you sit through the credits in the movie theater. One last bit of of modern pop culture we can tie into this. Marvel is so known for doing these after credit sequences, but here this movie is doing it in 85. I reviewed this for the, the school newspaper when I saw it, and I had people afterwards, they were thanking me for mentioning that in the review. Didn't say what it was, but I said, you know, there's something at the very end for people who sit through the credits. Because it just wasn't something anybody did at the time, because no movies had any content. After the credits started rolling. So we're not going to say what this is, but we're going to say, like, if you do watch this movie, stick around to the end. And if you know some narrative tropes, you might be able to to predict. But that's part of the fun of anything that has that sort of detective mystery story is the fact that any good thing has left some clues for you. And they have fun with that here. But to see them do that and to see the, the credits scrolling over video that is not fading away it's it's showing the car carriage leaving with homes it's showing a transition it's still that was fun because i mean it 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 played with what the movie was going to do it played with the, the narrative structure in that sense and i i don't know of my other movies that would do that before the the internet fueled well, you got to stay to the credits kind of system that's started up now with the other movies that do that. And the thing that drives that with the Marvel movies is, of course, that there are dozens of movies connected to one another. That end of credit, that after credit sequence in a Marvel movie is there to tee up the next movie they want you to come see. Not really the case here. This was just a little bonus for those who stuck around and liked the material. Yeah, th- th- this is a reward instead of a a preview, and and I like that. That that was fun. That that's another instance where this movie is respecting its audience into and and trusting them to follow along with it. And then that that definitely fit. And it was another little bit of fun. I mean, a lot of the. To the extent I have criticism for this movie that I've, I've talked about here, it's the fact that 
it sometimes doesn't take some certain things as seriously as you would want it to, or, or it makes things things like like death and trauma don't have the impact you think they would. This is again, this is that end credit sequence. It's in keeping with the rest of the movie because it's having a little fun and it's adding something a little bit light, but interesting, and it's it's entertaining. Oh yeah, it is definitely still of the the adventure side, not, but it's it's delivered using the mystery side, and. I, I think that means we're kind of leading into our final review. Our I final think so. Here. Yeah. And for um, and for movies, that means our first question is: a screen or no screen? Should people watch this? I'm gonna say screen. This is definitely a. If you are a huge Sherlock Holmes fan, this is not going to be a a deep dive Sherlock Holmes story, but it is going to be a fun thing that you can appreciate the the social the 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 overall narrative version of the Sherlock Holmes character but there is a little bit in there with the narration and the the tone and such at times even when it when it does go serious that fits the stories from the books so well, I can definitely say screen it it's fun I agree I would say screen this if anything about this sounds interesting it, it will definitely uh reward a viewing and you're right it's for any Sherlock Holmes fans, it's worth seeing, unless you're a Sherlock Holmes purist. Mm-hmm. If you're any kind of a Sherlock Holmes purist, this is not going to be for you. It is speculation beyond and contrary to what's established in the uh, in the stories by uh, Conan Doyle. But that said, if you are enough of a fan of Sherlock Holmes without being such a purist that you can enjoy and appreciate that kind of fond homage that this speculative story is. It's a lot of fun. And while the entire movie may not all snap together to become a really, really good movie, it has so many really, really good parts. It is well worth watching. From a cinematography perspective and from a a cinema appreciation perspective, it's an excellent movie to see just because of the the number of elements you can find that seem to be from from distant corners of what we know now all coalescing in this one movie as they move forward so the way that it fits right into that dead center of the 80s spot in it's referencing things that came before sometimes not very long before and it's predicting or or foreshadowing things that came after in movies it's a fascinating movie to watch just in that respect. Like you have things that were were really borrowed from earlier movies like the uh, Indiana Jones movies, the beginning of Pixar as a force in motion pictures. It's, it's worth seeing just as an artifact in that way. My goodness, just the clip of the night from the stained glass window is beautiful to see. And you can find that clip on YouTube. But if you can, watch it on a nice big good screen in a dark room, just because it makes a great impression. Mm-hmm. I, I was sitting there stunned at this animation. And, like, I've, I've seen things that are so much more... I mean, my, my computer upstairs has rendering capabilities. Probably, 
probably could could match what this probably did. has as much processing power as Pixar did in 1985. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But I was amazed with what they're doing with this because it's just a the tools were being used so cleverly to make something work, and that's a lot of this is this is a bunch of people honing their tools or showing the skills they've honed in one project altogether and then going off to do all these other things with those skills that you've seen elsewhere. So it sounds like we have agreement that this is a screen. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and watch this movie. It is, it holds up in many ways and it's well worth watching. So our other questions, they're all the, the, the second question is always revive reboot or rest in peace. Oh, this is a tricky one because it's an adaptation. It's a it's a hard it's a hard deviation from the original source material, but it's still an an adaptation of another work. So, so you think the Sherlock Holmes character has legs? <laughs> People going to be interested? Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure if you tried to kill him off, you'd still have to bring him back at least once. <laughs> uh <laughs> But yeah, like, there have been plenty of other Sherlock Holmes stories since then, so distinctly we would have to be talking about the idea of young Sherlock Holmes. You're right. Sherlock Holmes as a schoolboy with this alternate take on it, and I kind of want to say revive. I kind of want to say I want to see another story with young Sherlock Holmes and young Watson. Maybe a little later, them running into each other again. That was fun. So, I, so something where this movie is canon and it picks up sometime following this movie? I'm thinking so. Part of me can't tell if that's because I really want another 80s-style ad- adventure action-y sh- movie from them. And I'm just hoping that that carries with it in this brand. Part of me is thinking because that story, that take on these characters is interesting. There have been plenty of other shows that have been able to do a a what-if story and delve into how that changes the character. I kind of want to see them do that with this more. I kind of want to see a, well, if he's actually got the support earlier, he doesn't go into the opiates, so he's clear-headed later and his life turns out better. I could see them having some fun there. Yeah, although I think Maybe. more so than Watson, they are setting Holmes up to be the kind of Holmes we see later. Yeah. Because early in the movie, when he's in love with Elizabeth and he, they're talking about what they want to do with their lives, his only answer is, I don't want to be alone. And he knows he won't be because he has Elizabeth and they have this connection. Now, once Elizabeth is dead, all he has to say about life is, you know, whatever... Yes, I've got my whole life ahead of me, and I will spend it alone. Yeah, they do set him up as, like, getting angsty fast. I, could, I can see this guy climbing into a bottle of opiates. Yeah, that's the problem. So, but, you know, like, I could still see fun with this story and fun with doing the characters as as younger in characters and interacting in this more action-y style. And I said opiates. I suppose I should say cocaine, because that was more of Holmes's thing, but anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I I understand why you're saying um, revive. There's enough to really like about this movie. I can understand wanting to see more of it or see what's next for these versions of the characters. 
none of that really becomes compelling enough for me. Okay. I'm tending to say rest in peace. It's a fascinating movie. It's an interesting little thing that was made in the 80s, and it's worth watching. But it's not, to me, it doesn't add so much to the possible Sherlock Holmes lore. And it wasn't a story that needs more story to make it worthwhile. I would say rest in peace. Let this movie be what it is. Let people watch it. But I don't need more about it. I can understand that. It's definitely a movie where its potential might not have to lie with itself. If that makes any sense. The things that I love about this, I could see being picked up by other things later and and still giving me that satisfaction of wanting more. So I can definitely see where you're where you're going with that and what you're saying. So I think that wraps us up for Young Sherlock Holmes. I think so. And for this episode of the IWMP podcast. Thanks, as always, for uh, for joining us and for, for downloading and listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll be back in a few weeks to uh, to talk some more about media from way back in the 20th century. In the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on most places as item crafting, such as Twitter or uh, on Twitch as item crafting live. Awesome. And you can reach me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at by Matthew Porter, or you can find me online at MatthewFPorter.com, two T's in Matthew. And you can find the podcast itself on Twitter at IMMPCast, or you can find us online at the website IMMProject.com, and that's where you can find uh, our uh, back episodes, a contact form where you can uh, get in touch with us, suggest things we might want to watch and talk about, uh, you'll find some t-shirts that you can uh, take a look at and, uh, in general. Oh, and, uh, and thanks to anybody who has written in a uh, shout out to Thomas who, uh, gave us some, uh, some great ideas, uh, a week or so ago. Uh, we'd love to hear from, uh, from all of you so we can reach us there. Yeah. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch.